Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Well, this morning we're looking at the final night vision of Zechariah, the eighth vision, the way we've been counting, although you will notice if you saw the, the new handout that, that I distributed that, that, that your pastor is wavering and leaning really heavily to the thought that the, there's seven visions rather than eight, and that if he'd been wiser, he would have started off with seven instead of eight. But, but we can't go back and undo the mistakes of the pastor's past, so we have to make the best of it. If you recall in the vision of the lampstand, we talked about the lampstand as a menorah with seven lights across the top. There are seven visions in this arrangement of the night visions. They correspond to that lampstand. And hopefully this helps you see very clearly the chiastic structure of the visions. In other words, the way that they kind of uh, repeat themselves on the back end. They, They reproduce the pattern of the beginning, but in reverse order. So you see, we've gone from the four horsemen to the four horns and the four craftsmen to measuring Jerusalem to Joshua cleansed at the center. And then we work our way back out through the lampstand, the flying scroll, the woman in the basket last week, and then finally the four chariots here. And you can see as you look at that chart, the, the corresponding themes, the ways in which each vision parallels the one on the other side of that structure. So as we look at the final vision, the vision of the four chariots, we are, of course, reminded of the starting vision, which was the vision of the four horsemen. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school when I was teaching the the teens, and it's the same men in the first vision and the last vision. They have horses in the first vision. In the last vision, they have chariots because they're now tooled up to do some battle as we will see as we look at our text. So this is in Zechariah chapter 6. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go. Patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Father, we ask that our spirits too would be set at rest as we contemplate your word, that you would quell our fears and give us a confidence in the power, the saving power of our Lord Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. And one of the interesting things to me about these visions is how flat they can be on first reading. 
that the first time you read this, there's some strange images. You're not sure exactly what's going on. There's, there's occasionally a little bit of action, not always a lot of action, not enough to call it a story exactly. But on first reading, sometimes they don't sparkle. They don't glow with intensity. It's only when you go back over it and you start thinking about the meaning of what's being said that the visions begin to transform. And you realize that though you saw it to begin with, you didn't really see it. It's only after you've spent some time with it that your eyes are really open. Now, for me, the eighth vision is like that in spades because when I first was working through the visions, I was a little disappointed that it ends on such a kind of a a damp squib. And we had a lot of drama in in the earlier visions. We had flying scrolls. We had stork-winged women. We had baskets full of wickedness. And now at the end, we get something that feels like uh, Greek drama where there's a build-up to a battle and, and people march off to battle and then you just hear a report about it after the fact, like you would in, in, in Oedipus Rex or something, where, where all the drama happens off stage and you just have messengers coming in to report on what's taken place. And you're like, what a missed opportunity, Zechariah. Wouldn't it have been better if we had followed the chariots into the north and seen what happened, but we don't. And yet... The more time I spent with this vision, the more it began to shine and the more glory there is to be revealed. And I hope that by the time we're done talking about it, you'll see some of what I'm talking about. So this is the final vision. This is the one that comes at the end. It settles all the questions that have been raised along the way. And obviously the theme here is rest. There is a rest that is the final note in this vision. And it should remind us of the big question from the first vision, which also had to do with rest. Remember, the horsemen rode out and reported back, and they reported that the nations are at rest. And that's what started this whole drama. It was when they said the nations who subdued Israel are at rest that the angel of the Lord began to speak and said, How long, O Lord? And that's what set all these events in motion. And now we come to the end and that final report that rest has been achieved, but it's a different rest. It's not like a a false rest of the wicked who think they've gotten away with their wickedness. This is a real and final rest that comes from God's victory. And now we see that victory was never in doubt. We thought there was going to be a climactic battle. We thought there was going to be an epic struggle between the forces of good and evil, and it would go down to the wire. And it turns out that all that was necessary for the victory to be achieved was for the heavenly host to go out and patrol. They just needed to go out and patrol, and then they come back and say, things are at rest for real this time. An ultimate testament to the power of God. But first, before we get to that victory, let's look at these chariots and how they emerge. We're told the chariots emerge from between these mountains of bronze. And there's some good questions we could ask about the significance of those mountains. Why mountains exactly? Why two of them? Well, it's interesting when you think about the history of mountains in Scripture. A mountain, honestly, not just in the Bible, but but in real life is a place where it seems heaven and earth meet. When you go up onto the mountaintop, you feel closer 
to the heavens. Right? This is where Moses went to receive the law from God. He went up into Mount Sinai, left the people behind, and he encountered the Lord there. But here we have a mountain, not just one, but two mountains. Two mountains is interesting because it's not the first time we've gotten pairs like this in these visions. Remember, if we go back at the beginning, in vision one and two, we were getting things in groups of four because of totality, but then we started getting twos. Remember, we got the two myrtles at the beginning in the first vision. Then we got two olive trees in the fifth vision, and the two olive trees were reminders of the angels on either side of the Ark of the Covenant inside the temple. We saw two winged women before who were kind of a, a, a weird inverse parallel of those angels. In each of those instances, what's significant about those pairs isn't just what they are, but what's between them. The reason that they're mentioned the way that they are is to emphasize what comes between them. And in each case, what's between them is presence. Presence, the presence of God in most cases. In one case, the presence of wickedness. Because the two sit on either side of the throne or the seat of presence and symbolize that presence. Now, if you go and look a little bit later in our text, when Zechariah asks, what are these? We're told these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. So he tells us not just where they're going, but where they've come from. They've come from presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. And they've done this at this site between the two mountains. A couple of years ago, we preached through the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 8, there was a famous covenant renewal ceremony where the people of Israel positioned themselves at the foot of two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And commanded by Moses before his death, they enacted this ceremony where the people shouted back and forth to one another, and they voiced the blessings and the curses of the covenant on those two mountains. If you're interested in knowing more about that, you can go back to March 25th, 2018, to the sermon that I preached about that two mountain ceremony. And that's in Joshua 8, 30 through 35. And that sermon was called People of the Word. So definitely, when you see two mountains here, you might think of instances like that, but there's a future prophecy that's relevant here as well. We have to jump forward to the end of the book of Zechariah, and that will bring into sharp focus the significance of these two mountains. If you look in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 and 4, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall be northward and the other half southward. So if you're getting your your map out and looking for the two mountains that are being referred to, the answer is they're not two yet. This is a future event when Christ returns to the Mount of Olives and the mount is is separated into two. So the picture we're seeing here prophetically is God setting foot on earth at Mount Olivet, and from his presence, the heavenly host goes out 
through the earth. God sets down and sends out his power from there. The mountains aren't just any mountains. They're bronze mountains, and bronze is significant here as well. Bronze, we don't think of it this way because we have other shinier metals, but in the ancient world, bronze was super shiny. Things made of bronze were radiant like the sun, and so when biblical authors want to talk about God's radiant presence, his glory, bronze is often the metal that they will compare it to. So, for example, in Ezekiel 1, There's a theophany, there's a vision of God through symbols, and you see bronze used to describe the glory of God. But it's more specific than that. In apocalyptic symbolism, there are multiple visions, theophanies, visions of God, or Christophanies, visions of Christ, where he's represented as a man, and bronze is associated with his legs specifically. So he'll have legs of bronze. So in Ezekiel 1, verse 7, you read, Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Then if you skip over to Daniel chapter 10, when Daniel sees this, this terrifying vision of this glorious figure, he says his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And you think, wow, I wonder who that is. And then go to the end of your Bible in the book of Revelation, very first chapter, John sees a vision of a man very similar to this. He sees Christ and writes, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. So when you think of bronze, think of legs, think of the legs of Jesus specifically, and that may seem strange, but remember, we've just seen a prophecy about God setting foot on earth, placing himself on earth with his presence. Of course, the temple was the place where God was present, where his glory dwelt. And in order to enter Solomon's temple, you would have to work through or walk through the gateway. And the gateway represented the gateway into heaven, the gateway that these chariots have just come out of, the gateway into the presence of God. As you walked into the temple through the gateway, if you were paying attention, you would see on either side of the door pillars. And those pillars were made of bronze. And they were, not surprisingly, symbolic of the legs of the Lord. The legs of the Lord standing upon the earth at this point of contact. So that this gateway to God's presence represents God on earth, symbolizing the anthropomorphic image of the bronze legs of deity standing on the earth. Meredith Klein puts it this way. says, the bronze here reflects the identity of the two mountains as the site of brilliant divine presence, the locus of the radiant appearing of the God of glory. Two bronze mountains represent the resplendent Lord as planting his feet on the earth, taking his stand in the midst of his people. So the most astonishing image in the vision is one that you almost miss if you blink. But when you think about the significance of the mountains in light of Zechariah's later prophecy, and you think about the significance of bronze in the temple and in apocalyptic literature, you realize these chariots are not the most exciting thing happening in this vision. 
It is the, 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 the fact of God coming down to dwell among us, of setting his feet on the earth, and that place becomes a center of activity where he sends out his power to the four winds. And he goes out into the world and does the work of salvation and the work of justice. Now, the heavenly hosts from the first vision who were packs of horsemen here are charioteers. They've come out in force, not just to scout around, but as they say, to patrol. And they're sent out in interesting directions. Now, they are compared to the wind or sent to the wind. And we said before that the wind speaks to divine agency. The wind speaks to the power of the Spirit. So these chariots are being sent out by God to do his will and his bidding. But they don't go out in four directions. They go in two directions, north and south. Because the geography of the promised land is such that west is is water and east is desert. But if you go south, you get to Egypt. And if you go north, you get to what's called here the land of the north. Well, what is the land of the north? How do you, or where do you go when you go north from Israel? Well, you go to Shinar, you go to Babylon, the place that we saw last week. In fact, Zechariah makes it really clear, if you recall in chapter 2 in the sermon that follows after the vision in chapter 2, we're actually told, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Flee from the land of the north, flee from Babylon. So the land of the north is Babylon. So if you think about the way the last three visions have built, first we saw the house of wickedness consumed. And then we saw wickedness put in a basket and deported to Babylon. And there are a lot of people who say to themselves about this kind of judgment that, hey, that's fine. You're saying if, if I reject God, then he sends me to hell to live with the devil and all of my fun friends. This sounds better, frankly, than an eternal church service. The bad news is wickedness doesn't get to reign in the seat of wickedness forever. Because in this vision, we see the chariots head over to where wickedness has been deported in order to execute final justice on that wickedness. And then they come back and report victory. So it's not just that wickedness is going to be given its own place to live, and then wickedness and righteousness can coexist. Wickedness is separated from the land, and then wickedness is judged, and justice is done throughout creation. And then we get the report of victory. Some of you have run marathons before. Um, I have not. It won't surprise you to know. But, but I am fascinated by the story of the first marathon, which, of course, was not a jogging competition. It was an actual battle between the Greeks and the Persians that took place at a place called Marathon. And the Greeks were not expected to win, but they did win the Battle of Marathon. And there was a guy, a runner, a messenger, who was sent, supposedly, Philippides was his name, and he ran 26 miles to report on the victory. And then, of course, when he reported on the victory, he supposedly fell down and died after he had done it, which is why I was never interested in running marathons, because they seemed like fatal events. But apparently people do it all the time, and they don't die, I guess, special circumstances. But the word that he declared 
when he came back and reported to the elders this great victory was Nikomen. Nikomen. We have won. We are victorious. Um, it's from the same word printed on some of your shoes, Nike. Victory. That We have won the victory. That's what's happening at the end of this vision. A report is being made. We have been victorious. God rules in the north. The spirit has established rest in the land of wickedness. This victory and this vision is an eschatological shalom. Right? There's a peace that is coming at the end of all of God's work, and it will establish a final rest. The peace that flows from God's justice and his righteousness in defeating all evil. We saw unrighteousness consumed and then unrighteousness deported. And finally, we see wickedness defeated as Babylon falls once and forever. And then there's rest. And then there's rest, finally. And that rest means that the work is done. That the history of trauma and sacrifice and sin, that all of it is finally over. That's the promise that these visions make. It may be cryptic to us at times, We may see it through a glass darkly, but that is the kingdom gospel that the night visions of Zechariah proclaim. It is a gospel that has at its heart cleansing, atonement, but has as its end rest. That's why it's important to look at the connections between the visions, between 1 and 8 and 2 and 6 and 7, as we do on this chart, because you begin to see the themes and how they connect. In visions 1 and 8, resting is the theme from a false rest at the beginning to a true rest at the end. And then we see in vision 2 and then in 6 and 7 what we could call judging, where God sends his craftsmen out to undermine the nations in vision 2. And then we see in the fine scroll in the basket of wickedness, the wickedness being judged and dealt with and sent out of the land. And then in visions three and five, we saw a building. We saw a man with a measuring line measuring out the city of Jerusalem, a city so vast that its multitudes could not be contained. And then in vision five, we saw Zerubbabel finishing the temple that he had laid the foundation to, the construction not only of the city of God's people, but of the house of God, the temple, the center of God's presence. Now, three and five function in the way that the two bronze mountains do or the two angels or the two olive trees. Three and five are bookends and between them is cleansing. Between them is that fourth vision at the center. Placing this vision in the center means to put a spotlight on it, to remind us this is what it's all about. And that vision is a vision of atonement, of cleansing. But at the center of the kingdom gospel is that act of atonement where the angel of the Lord removes the iniquity of the people. And that is the promise of the gospel. Cleansing is at the heart of the kingdom gospel and rest is at the end. And the Messiah will be the one, the priest king, who comes and sacrifices himself as an atonement. That's cleansing. He makes his people into a temple for God to dwell in. That's building. And then he establishes justice throughout creation. And that's judging. And that is how Jesus will bring about the final rest. 
So in these visions, we see, as it were, the work of Jesus foresignified, prefigured in advance. So that once you've seen it, you go back and you recognize it and you realize Jesus was the one who was prophesied. And I can trust in what I see. Because what you've glimpsed through a glass darkly, you will one day see face to face. And so it's important to live like it. We reflect on this gospel of the kingdom through a glass darkly. What have we learned over the last few weeks? What has it said to us? I think one thing is that things that began as mysteries became plain as day. All of this stuff was mysterious when it was first prophesied, misunderstood. And it was only with the coming of Christ that the light began to dawn. Things that began as mysteries became plain as day. And things that seemed impossible to build were built. And things that seemed impossible to destroy were destroyed. That's what the visions teach us. They teach us how we should live with mystery now. If it's true that things that began as mysteries later became plain as day, then the things that remain mysterious to us now will one day be plain, will one day make sense. So there are mysteries. There are things about the kingdom we don't understand. There are things about the future that we don't know, things about uh, really important stuff that God hasn't revealed to us. How should we feel about that? How should we live? Should we be worried? Should we be anxious? Should we be concerned that God isn't as good as he says he is, that God isn't just the way he claims to be? No. No. Because in the past, we've seen those mysteries become plain as day. We should have confidence that what remains mysterious to us will make sense when we see him face to face. We should expect them to become clear. We should expect them to make sense as we look back. In fact, that expectation fueled a lot of early Christian thought. If you go back and and look at the church fathers and you read some of the earliest works of apologetics, you'll find that the case for Christ was made in what may seem to you like the simplest of terms. It was made in terms of fulfillment of prophecy. How could Jesus not be who he claims to be when you consider everything that was foretold and prophesied in the Old Testament, was mysterious then, and then became plain as day. I'm going to read you a quote from perhaps the earliest Christian apologist, Justin Martyr, who wrote an apology or a defense to the Roman emperor. He was basically explaining why Christians shouldn't be persecuted and killed just because they're Christians. And one of the things he does is catalog all of the prophecies of the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the New, including those of Zechariah. And then he writes this. Since then, we prove that all things which have already happened had been predicted by the prophets before they came to pass. We must necessarily believe also that those things which are in like manner predicted, but are yet to come to pass, shall certainly happen. For as the things which have already taken place came to pass when foretold, and even though unknown, so shall the things that remain, even though they be unknown and disbelieved, yet come to pass. For the prophets have proclaimed two advents of his. The one, that which is already past, when he came as a dishonored and suffering man. But the second, when according to prophecy, he shall come from heaven with glory 
accompanied by his angelic host, when also he shall raise the bodies of all men who have lived and shall clothe those of the worthy with immortality and shall send those of the wicked endued with eternal sensibility into everlasting fire with the wicked devils. The future that Justin Martyr is writing about, the future that New Testament authors announce is a future that is shown to us here in the prophecy of Zechariah. How should we live with mystery? We should live with the anticipation and the confidence that it won't be mysterious forever. How should we live with evil? How should we live with the continuing presence of evil in our midst, in our lands, and in our hearts? Instead of being fearful and anxious, we should live with confidence even in the presence of evil. We shouldn't be afraid or overawed by the evil in the world around us. And oftentimes as Christians, we are. You'll see a lot of your fellow Christians look at the world that we live in and the dangers of that world and grow increasingly anxious and despair about the state of the world. It's all going to hell in a handbasket, which sounds like something Zechariah might have said in one of his visions. If not despair, sometimes we cope with that fear through hostility. You know, some Christians who aren't afraid of the world, they just want to fight to the death. They'd happily burn it all down. They want to believe that the final act in God's plan is destruction. But these are just ways of coping. When you meet people who are anxious, they'll be hostile. They'll be despairing. And all of that stems from a fear that what we believe isn't actually so that what we think is going to happen may not actually come to pass. When you meet a hostile and despairing Christian, the thing that you can know is they have doubts about whether the promises of God will materialize. But the record of fulfilled prophecy is a testimony to the fact that Christ will do what Christ has said he will do. And there is no reason to doubt any of it. There's no reason to feel despair in the presence of evil. And there's no reason to be bitter and angry in the presence of evil as well because the chariots of God are going to establish a rest permanently, not just here, but everywhere. It's going to come to pass, and it's a reason to rejoice. So if you are the people of Christ, then your whole history testifies that the mysteries will one day be plain and you will see him face to face. And if you are the people of Christ, then you know that nothing is impossible with God and there is no reason to fear. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.